Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility, just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Good afternoon. I'm Ewan Potts. We're getting to our special programme about the problems of the justice system in just a moment. But first, there's been a bit of confusion about jabs for jobs. Yes, number 10 has been insisting that jabs for jobs, as it's called, is a decision for individual companies after Dominic Raab called it a smart policy. The Foreign Secretary said he could well understand why firms such as Netflix, Google and Facebook were demanding that staff be fully vaccinated before they return to the office. But it did not go as far as suggesting there should be legal enforcement. Rob also didn't rule out on insisting on two jabs to work at the Foreign Office. His comments come as several companies announced plans to make inoculation against COVID obligatory for all employees. But now let's get on to the subject of our special programme, which is the trouble inside the justice system in England and Wales. It's reasonable to say it's in something of a crisis. The pandemic has meant that the process of trying cases has slowed down dramatically. We now have the highest trials backlog in records dating back to 2014. 48,755 as at the 31st of March 2021. It's been two years since the number of trials dealt with exceeded those received into the system. Meanwhile, government ministers are committing to a significant increase in prosecutions, as we heard earlier this week. And at the same time, prisons are already clogged, and there's high risk for COVID there, of course. And police say they don't have the resources for the increasing demands being placed on them during the pandemic and after. Well, let's talk about this with one of the leading voices in the area of justice and justice reform, Francis Crook, who's CEO of the Howard League for Penal Reform, which is the oldest penal reform charity in the UK. Francis, thanks so much for being with us. Welcome to the programme. Um, I mean, you obviously concentrate on what's going on in the prisons, but the prisons fill up from the rest of the process. So just looking at the system as a whole, what's gone wrong? Why is it under such pressure? Well, pretty much everything has gone wrong, as you say, from start to finish. Um, the only bit that's been working, functioning reasonably well is policing, because they've been reasonably well resourced. I know they had a lot of cuts of staff, but, but they managed that okay. Um, it's the Crown Prosecution Service, which has been um, hollowed out. Uh, the probation service, which was destroyed by, virtually destroyed by um, this government a few years ago and is now being uh, slowly put back together. Uh, the courts, which, as you say, uh, there are uh, tens of thousands of cases waiting to be heard. This matters because if you've been a victim of rape or other, another serious crime, you're waiting for your case to come to court. It could be a year, two years, even three years before it comes to court. Uh, that also means that someone who's accused of a crime can be remanded into prison and could spend months, maybe even years, waiting for the trial. Um, and then you've got um, the, the, the prisons themselves, which during 
during COVID, um, because the magistrates' courts weren't sitting, the number of people going into prison um, did go down a bit. So the, the number of it, but we've still got um, tens of thousands of people, men, forced to share um, to double up in cells, which were Victorian cells designed for one person. So they're basically held in a in a cell which is the size of a small bathroom. And, of course, what the Victorians did was they, they built prisons with nat- some natural light and ventilation, but all that's gone. So the windows are pretty much sealed up. And people have a toilet, but they have to defecate and urinate in front of their cellmates. And they can hardly move in there. They've been locked up in there now for 18 months. It's, it's very grim indeed. The um, the court system obviously came to a complete halt for a period during the, the pandemic. How how much of the problems you're describing are, are a result of the unprecedented time we've had and how much are, are, are longer-term problems that you've mentioned? These are mostly longer-term problems which have been made worse. Um, and it's very easy to blame uh, the pandemic. But actually, the courts already were clogged up and, and not functioning well partly because we take to court a lot of people who really could be dealt with in the community, um, who have mental health problems or who have addiction problems, and we punish them in the vain hope that somehow somebody who has a heroin addiction or who is alcoholic, um, going through the court system and being punished for their street, being, you know, uh, sleeping on the streets and, and being a nuisance, um, is somehow going to miraculously deal with their problems, which, of course, is complete nonsense. So there are far too many people being sort of clogged, clogging up the courts. And then the more serious cases seem to take forever um, in a court system that has been very poorly funded, um, under-resourced and, and not cared for. So the, the, the problems are endemic and have been there for years now. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, you've got huge experience in this area. You've been campaigning for many, many, many years. How does what we've got now compare to, say, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago? Is it much worse? Well, I think the most depressing thing is if somebody was around in in Victorian times and was put into a a prison today in Pentonville or Birmingham or Leeds, they would recognise the prisons. The prisons are pretty much the same as they were 100, 150 years ago. And that's not something to be proud of. Every other area of public public life has changed beyond recognition, but the prisons haven't. You've still got staff who are, um, who are basically just taken from the streets and given a few weeks of training. They're not uh, qualified, they're not educated, they're barely trained. They're just given a uniform. Uh, you've got cells that were built in in the 1840s. Um, you've, you know, it, it, there, there's hardly any technology. There's a little bit going into prisons now, but very little technology. So the prison system has not changed. The purpose of prison hasn't changed. We still don't know really what it's for. Um, 150 years ago, it was it was to help people find God, and they were put alone in cells to to you know ponder on their their misdemeanours. But now we just don't know what people are are there for. It's just a system of containment. And then dumped back on the streets with very little support. And we're surprised when people carry on stealing or are still violent. And and mostly, of course, we're talking about men. Um, Overwhelmingly, the the criminal justice system deals with crime by men because men commit most crimes. 
Um, so you, you have a, a system which doesn't look at the, the deep fundamental problems. And prisons have to pick up the failures of other public services. So people are dumped in them because of the, the failures of, of health, education, housing, um, addiction, mental health services in the community. How has the uh, involvement of the private sector in the last, I don't know how long it's been, 30 years perhaps? How, how, how has that affected the, the prison system? Is there a difference in performance between the, the two sides? No, not really. I mean, I, the, the private prisons represent about 10%, slightly over, of our prison system. Um, and they, like the, the, the public sector prisons, they vary. They tend to be newer build, um, which, which is a, a mixed blessing, I have to say. Um, and uh, but, but but basically, they haven't made that much difference. But some of the private prisons are still very grossly overcrowded. They take extra people so they can obviously make more money. I mean, the the purpose of the private prisons, they're private companies. Their main purpose is to make money, to make a profit. As a private company, that's what they're there for. And so they vary in in how they deliver the service. Um, I don't think it's helped. Let's put it that way. I think it's a new flexible system. I mean, for example, um, the a private, actually American private company, um, has been running a child jail, which was so dreadful and so abusive to children. They just lost the contract, and the children had to be quickly moved out uh, to other to other settings. Uh, so it's it's not a, a history of success by any means. Francis, what about the impact of COVID on the prisons? Because as the court system grinds through very very slowly gets bunged up more people waiting on remand the numbers going up you mentioned that i mean one would assume this is a perfect area for covid to thrive potentially in prisons is that what's happening well we thought that was going to happen and i did theorize at the beginning that that's rather like in john howard's time 200 years ago that 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 jail fever would would go rampant and people would die in large numbers but actually that didn't happen because what the prisons did was they locked everybody up all the time. So they're in their cells. They hardly have any contact with anyone else. Um, that's okay. It did save lives. But it does mean that people um, are sent to prison, hopefully for some kind of transformative experience so that when they come out, they're not going to commit more crimes. But of course, there's been no programs, no work, nothing going on in prisons at all. Um, and they are now being released back into the community, having spent 18 months or so uh, lying on a filthy bunk, having had a shower once maybe three days, and wearing the same clothes day after day and night after night. They don't get pyjamas. With with no kind of support or help or mental um, Mm. help or physical, you know, no exercise. It's been very grim indeed. So I'm not sure that it's going to help in the long run. Leaving aside the pandemic, what's the way forward? Where would you like to see the prison system in, in five years' time? Well, in the, I hate to say this, but there is some, there's an opportunity. Because the number of men, women and children in prison has gone down because of COVID, we can now change things. We can see that there hasn't been a crime epidemic. We could reduce the prison population. My My thing is that... When Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister, who was not generally known as a softie, the prison population was half what it is today. So we could go back to that. We could go back to the, the around 40,000 men and women in, in prison. Yeah. 
Um, and we could change things. We could ha- we could invest in community. We could invest in mental health services, drug addiction services. Put that money instead into things that prevent crime and protect victims. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Roger Hearing. Now, we've just been speaking to Francis Crook of the Howard League of Penal Reform, talking about the issues that come from the snarling up of the police, the court system and the prisons in terms of the impact on prisoners and how it affects them. But now we're going to have a look at what's happening with the victims of crime, how they fare in a justice system that seems to many people to have almost ground to a halt. Well, let's uh, chew this over with Alex Mays from the charity Victim Support. Alex, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, let, let's start off with just discussing how the pandemic has uh, affected the, the criminal justice system from, from your perspective. Hi, well, thanks for having me on to uh, discuss such an important topic. I mean, the victims of crime have, fair to say, have had a difficult uh, time during the pandemic, as so many of us have had over the past 18 months or so. The justice system kind of initially ground to a little bit of a halt at the start of the pandemic. Cases were still being heard in in courts, but, you know, things slowed down greatly. And and what that has meant is that we've now got victims of crime waiting an incredibly long time for their case to come to trial. You know, we know that, um, you know, that steps have been taken to address some of this this backlog in cases. You know, the government have opened... Nightingale courts across England and Wales. You know, we've seen kind of greater flexibility around giving evidence remotely and, and digitally. But there's there's no getting around the fact that that victims of crime are waiting increasingly long time for cases to come to trial. And does this make a big difference to them? Because I mean, one can imagine many situations in which the speed of what happens is a vital part of ending their suffering. In a way, uh, the longer it's it's played out, the worse it is for them. Yeah, well, I think we we know that long waits for trial can have a really detrimental impact on on victims and, and witnesses. As 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 you say, it's very difficult to move on from the crime if you are waiting for trial. We have some cases where victims are waiting, you know, up to two years, three years, even four years for, their, for, 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 for justice. We've got cases now that are listed not until 2023. And, and what this means is that for many, their life is on hold for this time. That it's very difficult for them to, to, to move on, to start um, seeing themselves beyond the crime. And, and that is really difficult. I think there's also another potentially big impact here, which is that 
um, you know, victims may drop out. Victims may decide that they no longer want to give evidence or they may decide that in future they, they won't support the process again because of these long waits to trial and because they, they might just find that it's, to be honest, not, not worth it. So that's something that, that happens, is it, that, that people just decide it's, it, it's, it's too long and I'm, I'm not going to partake in this anymore uh, and the whole thing falls apart? So we certainly have seen that. There's an old adage that justice delayed is justice denied. And unfortunately, that, that is true. You know, we have seen cases where victims have decided to drop out of the justice process altogether or have said, you know, if this happens to me, you know, unfortunately, if this happens to me again in the future, um, I probably wouldn't want to go through this process again. And, and that, that is really concerning. And I suppose in those circumstances is also the frustration that the people who, who the victims, the people that who are alleged to have carried out the crimes, are effectively left. I mean, sometimes I guess they might be on remand, but they, they might not, in which case the person who has suffered may feel very vulnerable in these circumstances. Well, I, I think it goes to show that so many actors across the criminal justice system are impacted by these long breaks for trial. You know, defendants as well, of course, are... Are, are, in, are impacted by this and I think for, for, for victims it, it is it is difficult you know they're, they're unable to as I said to, to, to move on and it does it does lots of challenges and a lot of difficulties for them. What are the best ways that we can unblock the the court system given the given the the, the last sort of 16 months or so? Well I, I, I think it's you know first of all right to acknowledge that you know, long waits for trial are not just a pandemic problem. You know, thing, things weren't exactly kind of perfect in, in March 2020. Long waits for trial have, have been a, a problem now for, for many, many years. And I think if there was a, a simple solution, we probably would have taken it. Um, I think there are some things that, that, that can be done. You know, we've seen um, kind of in, uh, the government is rolling out what's known as pre-trial cross-examination in, in some parts of the country. And this allows vulnerable victims such as children, to pre-record their evidence in advance of trial. What this means in, in reality is that it brings forward the point at which they give evidence, which obviously means that you know, they can start to move on. They don't have this hanging over them in quite the same way. And I think this is a really good way, you know, as we as let's roll out further and to more people, this is, this is a good way that we can bring forward that point that victims give evidence. Um, and I suppose that there's also an element of, of trying to speed things up, perhaps by even not making it necessarily part of the court system. There's certainly been, I know, experiments when having restorative justice, perhaps on a kind of almost agreed basis, moving away from what takes up so much time and effort and money. But again, I guess that depends on the crime and also, of course, uh, how the victims feel, whether they feel they do have to have their day in court one way or another. Well, in, in terms of having their day in court, we know that victims have a have sort of a, some some mixed views on that. You know, some absolutely do want to have their day in court. They want to to feel like they can see justice done firsthand. For others, you know, they they find that actually giving a you know giving evidence remotely, um, separate from a court building, is actually a better way of doing it for them because you know they they feel that they don't have to go into court, they don't have to to risk potentially coming into contact with the defendants or, the, or their families, and you know, it's it's a slightly less successful experience. So there really is a kind of, you know, as as, as one would imagine, you know, across the population, victims of crime um, 
uh, sort of several million of us unfortunately fall victim to crime every year. So it's a broad section of the population, and there is a real mixed set of views in terms of what people would want to see from the justice system. What are some of the other reforms you'd like to see to, to make the system work better for, for victims of crime? So I think it's clear that the justice system can and should do more to help victims. It's not just long waits for trial. You know, victims face challenges you know, from, from reporting the crime through to post-trial. What's absolutely vital is that the government has promised to bring forward uh, what's known as the victim's law in order to strengthen the rights of victims of crime. And this is really important. You know, this is potentially something that can be a real game changer for victims of crime. Um, it must happen, and it's something that we really hope by putting victims' rights on a statutory footing um, can improve the experience of victims of crime. So what would that involve? And just take us through some of the things that would be involved in that that would make a big difference. So for, at, at the moment, what we have is uh, what's known as the Victims Code. Now, this is a, a document which sets out the rights and entitlements of victims of crime throughout through the justice system. So this includes things like um, the right to information, the right to be referred to support services such as victim support after reporting a crime, uh, the right to make a victim personal statement which sets out, um, in their own words, the impact that the crime has had on them. In reality, what exists on the victim's code and on paper isn't always translated. Um, and what we, what we hope to see through the victim's law is a set of rights for victims that are actually delivered on the ground that actually mean that when victims go to report a crime, they know that they will have access to information, access to support, updates about the progress of their case, the ability to make a victim personal highlighting the impact the crime has had on them. And we think that there could be a real transformative change in the justice process, something that really moves victims from being something kind of peripheral in, in the justice system, something that really considers the needs and experiences of victims of crime. So it sounds like there's a big gap between what's supposed to happen and what actually does happen at the moment. Is, is that right? Yes, there is a bit. I mean, we did some research in 2017 that looked at um, current entitlement victims of crime that had set out in the Victims Code and what happens in reality. And we found that, obviously, for, for many victims, you know, they, they do receive an exemplary service from, from the police, from the CPS, from actors across the, the justice system. But for far too many, their, their entitlement simply weren't being delivered. You know, we found that as many as, as six in ten victims of crime do not get their entitlements as, as they currently stand. And I think the, the problem that we have is, is that victim care is too often seen as a nice to have rather than something that's absolutely central to the process. And that's what we want to see changed. Yeah, and I, and I guess that pressure on that is even greater, perhaps, at a time of uh, difficulty of resources, as we know now. What about the police liaison officer? Many people think that is really where crime uh, is brought into the public life and, and people victims know that they have support from the people who are, who are, who are trying to sort out the crime in the first place. Does that work? Well, I, I think at the sort of very basic level what, what is required of the police is, is, is fairly straightforward. You know, what, what victims want to see is they want to be taken seriously when they come to the police to report a crime. Um, they want that crime to be investigated and they want to be kept updated about the progress of the case. 
and that's something that we find doesn't always happen. You know, we've, we've done research that has shown that in many cases, victims are left in the dark when they report the sleep. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.